Welcome back to another episode of PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. I am Annie Willifier, the Publishing Director at Jonathan Ball, and I would like to tell you about what we have in store for the next 40 minutes. This episode was recorded at the Workshop 17 studio. Anthea Jeffrey is the Head of Policy Research at the Institute of Race Relations in Johannesburg, and she is also a respected commentator and writer. She has written no less than 11 books so far in her career, and today she will be talking about her latest book, Countdown to Socialism, the National Democratic Revolution in South Africa since 1994. I've known Anthea for nearly 10 years, ever since 2014 when I published her book called BEE, Helping or Hurting. I know few writers who are as clear in their thinking and in their writing as Anthea. Today she will set out and discuss her key arguments in Countdown to Socialism with Michael Morris, who is the head of media at the Institute of Race Relations. Anthea's incisive analysis of the ruling party's strategy around a national democratic revolution and the impact it's had in nearly every sphere of life offers a valuable and enlightening explanation of why the governing party rules as it does. Uh, hello, my name is, is Michael Morris. Uh, I'm head of media at the Institute of Race Relations, and it's really a pleasure for me today to be here to chat to my senior colleague, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, about her new book, Countdown to Socialism. It's great to see you, Anthea, and uh, congratulations on a, a wholly engrossing and, uh, I have to say it, unsettling, uh, properly so, uh, analysis of uh, the policymaking that finds us uh, where we are today, after almost um, 30 years of ANC rule. The book is, is crammed with uh, fascinating detail and, and penetrating insights, and there's a lot for us to talk about. But let's perhaps start with a, a quite basic question about why, having already published uh, 11 other books on the South African condition, um, you decided to write this one, taking in developments leading up to the transition in 94, and then carrying the narrative through to look at how things have played out since. And of course, not only how things have played out, but most importantly, why. So why Countdown to Socialism in 2023? I think one has to back up a little bit and say that I've been fascinated for a long time and thought it's enormously important that the ANC has really since the late 1970s, just after the Soweto revolt, been engaged in a two-stage revolution. The first stage to gain power and to eliminate black opposition parties, to give the ANC the kind of hegemony that it would need mm. for the second stage, because the second stage is what we are in now. And the aim here is to take the country from a predominantly capitalist or free market economy to a socialist and ultimately a communist one. This is a gradual process, which is why it was so important for the ANC to have domination over the new South Africa so that it would not be at risk of being voted out again. And it could remain in power for a period of 30 to 40 years, during which it would gradually cripple and squeeze the private sector economy so that in the end, as state power grows, there would be really only the state for most people to rely on. And that would, of course, create an enormous dependence on the state. It would give the state an extraordinary degree of power. And for those at the very top of the tree, it would also mean unprecedented wealth. 
if we look at some of the countries in, in which similar policies have been implemented, such as Venezuela, we see that the economy has contracted by 70% of GDP hmm. in the last 10 years. Astonishing. But the architect of that system, Hugo Chavez, ended up as one of the 400 wealthiest people in the world. So inequality has in fact grown. One is often told that, that socialism brings equality. But as between the great mass of the people and the political elite, you have a level of inequality which is unprecedented in a free market system. Yes, of course. We're going to get back to some of that crippling and squeezing that you referred to when we discuss the sort of central chapters of the book. But uh, just allied to, to what you've just been saying, there's a word that I've heard you use a number of times uh, in, in recent weeks discussing the book, which is the word baffled, that what you're referring to is the sort of general public's inability to fathom why it is the ANC doesn't just get on and introduce the obvious reforms that are needed to improve the economy, grow jobs, fix schools, hospitals, fix ESCOM, crack down on crime and so on. And this word baffled and that sense of the, the public's sort of inability to fathom what the ANC is on about arises from a number of interesting qualities of, of, of the South African condition. One is that they simply can't see how a government that is self-evidently feckless and incompetent could, in fact, pursue and introduce this very complex ideological program. It, they would imagine require great organization and, and, uh, and, and, and discipline and so on. So as a result of this, they simply don't see the threat. The other thing, of course, and Hugo Chavez perhaps is, is a, quite a useful example, you, they, they, they see the, the sort of visible leadership of, of the ANC as people who are clearly not living socialist lives. They're not, they're not modest, they're not um, lacking in material, uh, material interests and accoutrements and so on. Um, and it just doesn't make sense to people. They are, they are baffled. But behind this bafflement is this terrible sense of complacency. This must surely have given the ANC a lot of room um, over the past 30 years to in fact, pursue the NDR. Absolutely. If people are not sufficiently worried about it, it does give them the opportunity to forge ahead with it. So to, to start with the issue of, of people don't believe that the ANC is competent enough to do this because it, it is a multifaceted strategy, I think it's important to recognize that the ANC is not doing this on its own. So if you look back again to the first stage of the revolution, the People's War, the ANC was able to draw constantly on advice, assistance on a daily basis from people in Moscow who'd been in guiding it and very other liberation movements across the planet. And this didn't end even with the collapse of the Soviet Union in mm. 1991 and the disbandment of the Communist Party of, so of the Soviet Union, because there were many other socialist parties, many other communist parties, many left-leaning uh, academics and analysts, and organizations such as the Socialist International, through which all these individuals and organizations could meet, share ideas, develop strategies, and help each other to implement them. So that when the ANC is implementing the NDR, it's first of all drawing on every, all the work that Moscow did in the 1950s and 60s to develop the idea and some of the examples that played out then. But it's also able to draw here today on the advice of people from around the world who can help it spot the opportunities and uh, advise it on what should be done next. Um, I think just perhaps a simple example is our horizontal application of the Bill of Rights, which is a bit of a mm. strange concept. Yes. We have a Bill of Rights which is binding not only on the state in order to protect the citizen from the abuse of power by the state, but is also binding on the private sector horizontally as against um, 
a company, another individual, and so on. And that idea came very much out of the US, where left-leaning activists had tried to implement it, but had failed to do so, but were able to persuade the ANC here to implement precisely such a concept in South Africa. So there's a big pool of advice, which is the biggest help available. Mm. And then the second thing is actually not that difficult to pass another law, provided you've got sufficient power. And of course, the ANC has got power uh, in Parliament. It has domination and it can draw on obviously good attorneys and lawyers in in the society and elsewhere. And then you have a law on the statute book. Where it depends on, say, the private sector to implement something like employment equity, the private sector will make considerable efforts to comply, or in the labor law sphere, the same thing. Where it depends on the state to implement, it will be done very inefficiently. But that doesn't matter. It, in fact, advances the NDR. If one could give an example in the health sphere, we know that our public hospitals have really deteriorated since 1994. This mm. has been acknowledged by our previous health minister, Swede Mkise, who said that things have gone down. But then the government uses the inefficiency of the public sector, for which it is largely responsible, to say, now we must have a new system. We must have the National Health Insurance System or the NHI. The problem is that the private sector is ciphering off too much resources Mm. and not giving the public sector the opportunity to function. So we must now put it all together in one pool and we must control that pool and then we'll have a good outcome. And what it also fails to tell people, of course, is is that it's refused to allow a low-cost medical scheme system, which could have given 15 million more people access to private primary health services, which could have reduced the pressure on the public service. Of course. So Mm. there are many other options. But when the ANC implements something which is important to the NDR badly through its incompetence and its corruption and never acknowledges the underlying true reasons but puts the blame somewhere else, then that again becomes useful in advancing the NDR. Yeah, yeah. Yes, one can see that in so many instances. Um, I, I want to move on in a moment to the aspect of um, the, the reputation of socialism internationally and here, and the uh, perhaps f- false hope that it will certainly false hope that it that it in- seems increasingly to offer so many people, or they perceive uh, this this hope in it, which is not, are not grounded in um, in, the, in the in the history of the ideology. But I just wanted to touch very briefly on uh, the wonderful quote from um, from the late. John Kane Byrne, our, our much lamented colleague, a, a withering observation about the common period sleeping through the revolution, um, and this clearly does. I mean, this this uh, this atmosphere of approval or, or atmosphere of of, uh, of permissibility is exactly what what the ANC counts on to be able to uh, to advance its its ideas without seeming to be radical or, or or irrational. The great tragedy is that the media so very much ignore the NDR. Mm. It's not that difficult to find information about it. One only has to read Mm. the documents put out by the ANC and the SSCP at regular intervals, and particularly at their five-yearly congresses and conferences, to get a great deal of insight as to what the NDR is all about and how they plan to implement it. And yet you see almost no reference to the NDR at all in the mainstream media and in many other analyses and in academic analysis and so on. It's as if it's a non-topic. And I fear that the same thing happened with the People's War, which the ANC used to bring itself to power, to weaken its, its black rivals and to make sure that it would have that degree of domination necessary for the NDR. 
just as, as we didn't acknowledge the People's War, so we're not acknowledging the National Democratic Revolution. Mm. And what the media doesn't deal with, given the, the, the influence and the power of the media, is unfortunately rather invisible to the population as a whole. And so the consequence of the commentariat sleeping through the revolution is that most South Africans are too. Yeah. They're not even aware, I think, on the whole, of what they're not being told about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is why your word bafflement is so effective, actually. It, it does express exactly that quality that people are just so poorly informed that they just cannot perceive, doesn't take a, a you know, you have to read one book and you have a, you have a very uh, vivid uh, impression of exactly what the NDR is and how it's being implemented. And yet people just, uh, just don't have a sense of it. Um, and as you say, uh, I mean, every year just about, I think the NDR, the ANC recommits itself to the NDR yes, by okay. name. Um, yeah. But it's a term that uh, that people are just not not familiar with at all. I think allied to that and your your earlier comments, um, one of the things that you draw out in the book is um, is the deceptive claim by socialists that that all the, the horrific um, instances of of sort of mammoth and bloody uh, disruptions that socialism brought in the twentieth century alone, um, Russia, China, Eastern Europe, Vietnam, Cambodia, Korea, and so on, did not in fact amount to real socialism. They were claim well, it, you know, socialism actually hasn't been successfully tried yet. And this is what what we're aiming to do. This is what this is the promise of the NDR. And presumably this kind of argument uh, has, has in fact been essential to the ANC to breathe new life and this kind of sense of hope into all its its policy programs, which align very closely or very directly to the uh, to the NDR itself. Yes, I think so. I, I think that when the Soviet Union dis- was disbanded in 1991, there was a sort of sense when our socialism had ended in the world and, you know, Mao's China was no longer led by Mao and it was also pursuing a more market-oriented path in order to build up its economic and its military power. But there was a sense that, that you know, that was over, that was done. Mm. Um, but there was no equivalent of the Nuremberg trials. There was no attempt to bring out just what the horrors of socialism had been in these different countries. And so as time has gone by, I think you have young people growing up with some knowledge of the Nazi atrocities mm. because those are talked about and there are movies about them and one can sort of absorb quite a bit of information without really setting out to learn anything about it. But not so with the socialist atrocities. And they were, of course, even more extensive. Uh, the Black Book of Communism was brought out in 1999, and it recorded almost 100 million deaths in these various socialist countries, particularly in the Soviet Union and in Mao's China. But the response of people who believe in socialism mm. has been to say, well, all of that was irrelevant. Mm. And we saw it first with Joe Slover, the chairperson of the SACP in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down. He asked the key question in an article, has socialism failed? And he came to the conclusion that it had not. Mm. Why, he said, because socialism, and I quote, was too commandist and bureaucratic as it had been implemented in the Soviet Union. But that was Moscow's mistake. Socialism was always meant to be democratic and participatory, and that's what they should have done. And that's what socialism in the future will be. It will be that participatory and democratic system. Heine says socialism is all about decent housing and water for those that don't have it and a sound schooling and all sorts of things that obviously people want very much to have. And he implies that the only way that you can get it is through a socialist system. Whereas the reality is, as we've seen from all the countries that do have thriving private systems, is that 
where in that situation people have employment, they have income, they have choices from the private sector, and they are able to meet those needs. Though there'll always be some people who, who need some help, where the state help is the only way to achieve it is up for debate. We used to do it very much through voluntary organizations, churches and so on. Perhaps that's a better model. But now they are pretending that socialism is the only vehicle to important needs mm. and also that it doesn't matter that it caused the deaths of 100 million people before because that wasn't real socialism. It's going to be done and better we will have time. real socialism yeah. in the future. Yes. And so you've been able, coupled with, I think, quite a bad press for capitalism over the last decades, uh, capitalism always being derided as just profit-driven, as promoting inequality, increasingly as being destructive of the environment. But people don't see much value in, in capitalism, or rather they're being trained to see negatives in capitalism rather than the positives of increasing prosperity, which reaches right down to the grassroots. And at the same time, they're being told that the horrors of socialism are unimportant. It is extraordinary, actually. It's a, quite a successful narrative, actually, that's yes, been, it, it is. been yeah. advanced. Which is why I think, you know, the chapters uh, 4 to 20, the, the bulk of the book, are really so important. And, and I would highly recommend that readers focus on, on this element of it. It tells us that the book is written in a clear and simple language and is an indispensable primer to the NDR. And one of the things that I want to focus on, actually, is that each one of those 17 chapters, and just to give you a um, a sense of the the terrain they cover. I mean, these are some of the titles, the Constitution, Cater Deployment, Multi-Party Democracy, Practical Things Like Water, Mining, Land, Education, Healthcare, The Battle of Ideas, Disciplining Capital. So it covers a lot of ground, the government administration, private sector, the economies, social life, and so on, that each one of these chapters, of these 17 chapters, tackles three essential questions. Uh, what the NDR objectives are in that particular field, what has been done to achieve them so far, and what the consequences are. So it's a very clear setting out of the condition that we live with, that we we recognize, but we it's now, you set it out very clearly in the context of uh, the, the very deliberate program of the ANC. And I know it's very difficult to um, capture all of that. Well, it's impossible to capture all of it. And we don't want to give it away to readers. We want them to buy the book. Uh, but if you were to choose one sort of realm of policymaking, one or two, um, to exemplify these elements, um, which which would it be? Well, perhaps we should look at, at two of the most topical right now, which is, first of all, the NHI system, the National Health Insurance System. And as I indicated earlier, the NC has, as it were, created the need for the NHI, or what it says is the need for mm. the NHI, by allowing this extraordinary deterioration in, in public health, that it is uh, very much a, a problem of management and sort of NDI interventions, taking away skills, encouraging corruption, not acting against negligence, becomes very evident if you look at the performance of the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape on something like liability for medical negligence. Mm. The two provinces have very very much the same facilities and, and populations in need of healthcare. But in the Western Cape, the, the medical negligence potential liability is about 130% of the entire budget. And in the Western Cape, it's less than 1% of the budget. Yes. So it's because the Western Cape has used the resources better and the Eastern Cape has not. Mm. And ignoring all of that, you know, the ANC simply says that the NHI is essential. It's the only way in which we will achieve equal and free healthcare for everybody. And what it ignores is the, the underlying purposes. And the first underlying purpose is that you want to socialize private medicine. In other words, you want the private sector to put 
people before prophets, which sounds not a bad thing. Many people would agree. Mm. But what are the consequences of that? And one is that you will meet another NDLGO rolling back the capitalist market because increasingly a private hospital that must now treat everybody that comes to it without charging them and being able to be reimbursed by the state only so much as the state allows and only for such procedures as the state allows will increasingly find it's its capacity to survive as a going concern at risk. If the fees that it can charge are less than what it's having to pay out to meet the needs of all the people, then it will go bankrupt. Then we will no longer have that private institution. Mm. And already we will be in a situation where we'll have a monopoly of healthcare in the sense that though they will initially be private entities also involved in providing health services strictly on terms set by the state, in terms of fees, in terms of the medicines that they can provide, in terms of the treatments that they can offer, even the blood tests that are going to be allowed will be decided by the state. Mm. Um, so the government will have a monopoly over health services, and uh, that's unlikely to be efficient. What you want to do in the health sphere, if you really want to be able to help people as much as possible, is have a range of competitive entities competing to meet the needs of patients, using innovation, holding down their prices, but not being barred from from charging and, and, and times a realistic price, which will keep them available to offer the same service another time. You bet. Um, and what the NC is also very much trying to achieve is the pooling principle, which which takes a bit of explanation. But at the moment, you have what the NC says is South Africa, the country, spending 8.5% of GDP on healthcare. Of that 8.5% of GDP, 4.1%, so slightly less than half, goes to the public right. and has to deal with 84% of the population. And slightly more than half, 4.5%, goes to the private sector and deals with only 16% of the population. And the ANC says this is fundamentally unfair. That's why you must put it all together. But the assumption that it's South Africa that spends this money is what needs to be unpacked. Yes. Where does it actually come from? It comes from the same small pool of taxpayers. There's a relatively few taxpayers in South Africa because we have a very small tax base that pay the great bulk of the taxes which are taking care of people in the public health sector and where that money could be much better used with more efficiency. And then we have that same group of people using their after-tax mm. income to pay for the private care of their choice. And under the NHI, they will no longer be allowed to pay for the private care of their choice. It will be very much in keeping with the Markle slogan, which the government supplies cites, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, with the government deciding who has ability and who has need. A very state-controlled system. And we know that it's not going to work well. Yeah. Health professionals are tremendously concerned that the government is going to destroy what works best in healthcare in its attempt really to grab private sector resources. Yeah. And at the end of the day, once they've established the pooling principle, that it's somehow illegitimate for people to use their own after-tax income to meet their own and family needs, that will be extended into pensions. So it will become also illegitimate to have your own private pension. What you contribute must be pooled together with what the state contributes for the benefit of everyone. And ultimately, in the context of independent schools, that it will be illegitimate for a family to use its after-tax income to pay for independent schooling for its children. So it's, it's, um, a rally will increasingly erode the whole notion of private provision. And it will also erode the, the extent to which we can afford to have any private provision, 
because the institutions that are controlled that can charge the fee set by the state and nothing more will increasingly be unable to function, will go bankrupt. Yeah. And all <clears throat> we'll be left with is the state, which and is what the, the government wants, a huge dependency on the state and no possibility of being able to people to find self-reliance outside of the state. No, indeed, indeed. And there's that cynical um, contradiction of, you know, denying people the opportunity to provide for their own needs, only then to expand the burden, enlarge the burden on, on, this, on the state service that you're intending to, uh, supposedly, avowedly intending to, to improve. Um, so it, it just doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, what, what's, what's borne out by all the instances of the NDR that you, that you highlight in the book and examine in the book is that that very distant now promise of a better life for all. I mean, I think people have probably even forgotten this, the slogan, but uh, but we certainly haven't because it was, you know, such a, a resounding promise in 1994, better life for all. That was what the ANC was elected on. This has become so awfully soured in the years since and so unnecessarily, precisely because of all these things that, um, that the ANC is so doggedly pursuing. And which is, I suppose, why right at the start, I, I refer to your analysis as being rather unsettling as well as being engrossing. But the there is, in fact, um, some light at the end of the tunnel that as you, uh, you you make this point towards the end of the book, and you raise the prospect of of, a, of an, an alternative actually being plausible, but with the warning that it you know it obviously won't happen automatically on its own or without um, great effort. There's that element. I want to also ask you about uh, how you hope uh, voters and and, the, and readers will will read the book and and where, you know how they will react to it, but. Before we get to that, what 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 is that great effort that you think South Africa will need to make to reach that light at the end of the tunnel? If you like? Well, I, I think we do, despite the damage that's been done both to our democracy and economy, we do still have an operative democracy. Mm. And yeah, that means that we have the opportunity yeah. in 2024 for South Africans to go to the polls, which will still, I think, be run in a reasonably fair and free manner. And that distinguishes us still from countries like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, where the situation is far more adverse. Mm. So we, we can have a free election. Now, what are we going to do with it? And if one looks back in time, uh, you can see that from 2009 onwards, after the ouster of Tabo and Becky, there's been an increasingly disillusionment with the ANC. In that election, there were more people for the first time that stayed away from the polls than voted for the ANC. And that tendency has accelerated since that election. So we got to the point in 2019 where there were 10 million people who voted for the ANC, but 18 million eligible voters, people who could have registered and then gone to vote, people who did register and could have gone to vote, but they stayed away. 18 million stay-away voters is an enormous pool, far outweighing the 10 million who voted for the ANC. Mm. So it does create a great deal of hope that if, if those 18 million people now becoming disillusioned about the ANC, and I absolutely rightly so, because it's corruption, it's inefficiency, and it's determination to take us down this path to a socialist um, destitution is becoming ever more clear. So... If people will just be persuaded to go to the polls and vote for opposition parties, if they can stop believing that they punish the ANC simply by staying away and recognize that the only way to do it is to go to the poll and vote for a different party. And we have now a great variety of parties for which people can vote. We will hope that everybody will find that, that there's a party that suits them and that then these parties will be able to work together in a coalition government, which can get more than 51% of the seats in the National Assembly and can then start rolling 
back these NDR interventions and embracing the sorts of policies that will bring back the hope mm. of a better life for all. Indeed, indeed. And which brings us to the final question that I really wanted to ask you to share your thoughts on was how you hope particularly ANC voters will read the book, but voters generally, perhaps South Africans who um, who don't necessarily have a, a fixed political home. What are they to make of uh, Countdown to Socialism? What do you hope that they will take away? I think that we're often told that our, our electorate is a rather radical electorate that, mm. that likes radical policies like EWC, expropriation without compensation. But the polling that the Institute of Race Relations has done over many years has, has shown the opposite. And so too did some uh, opinion polling that was done by R.W. Johnson, one of our, our noted political writers, in 2017, mm. where Cyril Ramaphosa was standing for election as ANC president against Nkosazana Domini Zuma. Uh, and he was astonished, really, to find out what strong support there was for Ramaphosa, but very much on the basis of a belief that he was a man who would usher in business-friendly policies. There was no wish to see major redistribution. There was a great wish to see a great deal of investment and many more jobs and people being able to have that self-reliance and independence from earning their own livings. I think, unfortunately, a falsehood. Uh, Ramaphosa is a businessman who would do this mm. because we've increasingly seen that, that Ramaphosa is deeply committed to the NDR himself. Just to digress, but in addressing the, the SACP National Congress last year, he said that the ANC would do absolutely everything it can to defeat any challenge to the NDR, which is a joint program of the ANC mm. and the SACP, and the reason for our alliance. You don't get a much stronger endorsement of the NDR than that. Indeed. So that's where Ramaphosa actually stands. Mm. Um, but the, the belief that people um, had, their wish for business-friendly policies, their belief that what we most need are the sort of practical, pragmatic interventions that will see the economy growing and people getting the skills they need and jobs expanding. That is where most South Africans are. Mm. And I think that if, if the electorate, and I hope my book will help, can begin to understand that the ANC really is marching to a different drum, that they're not trying to take us to a thriving capitalist economy. They're trying to cripple the capitalist economy and then pretend that they're socialist nirvana will be a nirvana. And of course, it won't be. The only people who will benefit from it will be the, the small political elite, as in Zimbabwe, as in Venezuela. So if, in a way, the scales can fall from people's eyes and their deep commitment to pragmatism can help them to go to the polls and achieve a pragmatic outcome in the sense that there are political parties who have the same ideas and there could in fact for once be a, a sort of happy marriage between the electorate and the policies that are implemented on mm. their behalf. Mm. Whereas at the moment what we have is an extraordinarily small little group of people in the top echelons of the ANC and the SACP who adopt policies which are completely against the interests and against the wishes and the preferences of the great majority of South Africans. And that is becoming thankfully in a sense, although it comes as a great burden to the miserated masses, but thankfully I think that's sense is growing that whatever's been tried for now for 30 years just isn't working. Unemployment is is rocketing sky high. Um, there's joblessness, there's, there's economic decline, services are declining, um, life is just very difficult, prices are rising. Um, so hopefully the, the time is, is, is exactly right for, uh, you know, a kind of fresh thinking. Um, I've, I've, I absolutely agree. I mean, I've often felt that South Africa, the one great saving grace of South Africa is that we're actually not a revolutionary society. We, we, are for the most part 
rational, moderate. Uh, we'd prefer to get on than to fight for all our difficulties. And we've been through, you know, a century more of uh, terrific strife and, and great difficulty, millions of people really battling. And yet every time we come through and we manage to, uh, to keep going, but on the basis in our own lives of that pragmatism that you, that you refer to. Um, thank you very much. Um, Anthea, I, I feel sure that listeners will have found, um, your thoughts as stimulating as I have. And it strikes me that a, that a fitting, um, conclusion to our discussion is in fact the closing passage of, of your book, which, which I'm going to read. And you begin by saying the last sort of three paragraphs, free choice is what the political transition was always intended to achieve and what the constitution still allows. Voters have the right and the capacity to choose a different government, one with a real commitment to multi-party democracy, the rule of law, property rights for all, and a thriving economy able to attract investment, generate jobs, expand prosperity, and promote self-reliance. And of course, you make the point, achieving this will take enormous resolve and steadfast coordination among all the opposition parties. Your final words, I think, are very important. South Africa's voters hold the future of the country in their hands, and that future, despite many potent obstacles to change, is potentially brighter now than at any time in the past 70 years. And I think it goes without saying that that is no small thing. Um, Anthea Jeffrey, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we hope that you'll join us again next week. Until then, happy reading.